contradictions and challenges more than conclusions. I don't shape my biography to fit my conclusions, but I have shaped my conclusions in response to my biography. The fact that I learned these lessons from personal experience doesn't mean that the lessons apply only to me. This book isn't about my truth, it's about the truth to the extent that I can apprehend and explain it. Ralph Waldo Emerson arrogantly but appropriately declared, to believe that what is true for you in your private heart is true for all men, that is genius. I do not claim such genius for myself, but I do insist on relevance. Hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of Americans, have migrated, as I have, from the political left to the center and the right. For most of us, the hackneyed label, neoconservative, fails to do this journey justice. While the courageous refugees from the left in an earlier era focused almost entirely on issues of foreign policy and global conflict, more recent transformations involve a belated awakening to economic realities, the embrace of the traditional family, and America's ongoing and underreported religious revival. Many of the newly minted conservatives who play a crucial role in the Republican coalition might be more accurately designated as theocons rather than neocons. We have shifted our political and cultural affiliations based not only on the imperatives of protection and patriotism, but through our experience with paychecks, parenthood, and prayer. These elements all played essential roles in my personal transformation. In that context, I make the case that the turns I have taken aren't just right, they are right. Yes, I will describe what happened to me and enumerate the personal lessons and public principles I've learned from those events. But that doesn't amount to the end of an argument. It is, in fact, only the beginning. Before she came to this country, my grandmother watched five of her six children die. They were all girls, lost between the ages of three weeks and 14 years, doomed by malnutrition, disease, persecution, and war. There was nothing extraordinary, nothing exceptional about this series of tragedies. It was America, on the other hand, that proved radically different, utterly abnormal, a land bizarrely blessed in defiance of all laws of history. My grandmother understood American exceptionalism before she ever set eyes on the USA. In fact, she staked her life on it. She was born in 1881 in the ramshackle village of Makhnevka in the Ukraine, the blue-eyed, vivacious daughter of a slaughterer, a shochet, deemed respectable and comfortable by the standards of that time and place. At 21, she married a barrel maker, Herschel Medved, hardworking, quiet, and reliable, who relocated to her town from Khmelnik, some 20 miles away, an even more remote and dreary corner of the Pale of Settlement. They bore children nearly every year that they lived together before my grandfather made the journey to America in 1906. He traveled with his older brother and found work and lodgings in Philadelphia. And in Philadelphia, through fanatical labor and self-denial, my grandfather sent money every month to Russia so that the blue-eyed wife he adored could accumulate enough to pay her way to America. She needed to save the cost of the ship's passage across the Atlantic, train fare for herself and the children all the way to the Baltic port city of Riga, and bribe money to deal with the corrupt and sadistic czarist bureaucrats who supervised the complicated border crossings. 
my grandmother painstakingly packed her nine-year-old son Moshe and her remaining two daughters, along with her elderly father who refused to remain behind at home. They sold most of their meager belongings and tearfully departed their Ukrainian village in the summer of 1914. They rode crowded trains, stifling with heat and sweat, herded together with other would-be emigrants. When they arrived at Ostrolyanko on the border between Austria and Poland, the officials led the crowds to a row of huts where they could spend the night. That very evening happened to mark the beginning of World War I, with the weary Jews awakened before dawn and told to run for their lives and to find their way back to their home villages. My grandmother straggled back to the Ukraine, dodging both police and bandits. More than nine years passed from the time of her first attempt to leave Russia, fourteen years since she had last set eyes on her husband. For months, even years at a time, he lost contact with his grieving wife and only surviving child. But when he could reach them reliably, he continued to send them money from America, their only hope of survival. Finally, late in 1923, with Lenin consolidating the grip of his communist dictatorship on a broken and bleeding Russia, her 18-year-old son led my terrified grandmother out of the only world she had ever known, and they successfully boarded a ship to America. Once again, their timing proved almost inconceivably poor. By the time their squalid ship made its way to New York Harbor, the year was 1924, and the United States had adopted a strict new immigration law, abruptly and harshly enforcing an act of Congress designed to stop the invading hordes, particularly from Eastern and Southern Europe. After 40 years of mass immigration, native-born Americans worried that any sense of national identity and cohesion might be lost. In any event, the new legislation took effect during the time my grandmother and her son had been at sea, so the American officials informed them that they had arrived just a few days too late. This declaration caused hysteria and near riot from the passengers, some of whom threatened to jump overboard rather than give up their goal so close to the promised land. For two days the matter remained unresolved, especially regarding the newcomers who had left Europe before immigration restrictions had taken force and who traveled to America for the purpose of family reunion. Given the circumstances of her arrival, I cannot imagine my grandmother's emotions when she finally descended the gangplank, searching for her husband among the waiting crowds. My grandfather had said goodbye to a vital and beautiful bride of 29, with six tiny children. He now welcomed a 43-year-old survivor of uncounted horrors, accompanied by one wary adult son. They would have been virtual strangers to him and to the life he had built over all those years of toil in the crowded city of Philadelphia. The fact that they managed to renew their marriage, to sustain their love without hesitation or complaint, must in itself count as a miracle. But the miraculous aspects of the family history don't end there. In 1925, my grandmother fell ill, gaining weight at the same time she lost appetite. The neighbor ladies, who she had befriended in their Yiddish-speaking enclave of South Philadelphia, made an instant diagnosis. She undoubtedly suffered with a tumor and must immediately visit the doctor. She dragged herself to the neighborhood physician, who determined that against all logic, against any expectation, she was pregnant. My father, David Bernard Medved, arrived in February 1926. In an era when most people, especially poor people, aged far more rapidly than today's time-defying boomers, his mother was 45 and his father was 50, in the year of his startling birth. 
No wonder that my own earliest memories feature a sense of wonder, of gratitude, of providential intervention, of anything possible optimism regarding our family's place in America, this land of new life. Leaving behind the years of mourning and loss in the continent of death, my grandparents could come together and in every way begin again. They read an obvious significance in my grandmother's name. She was Sarah, following the example of her ancestor, the matriarch of Israel. The Bible reports that Abraham's wife conceived at age 90. Her husband had reached the ripe age of 100. Rabbinic scholars through the ages have pondered the purpose of the Torah text in going out of its way to emphasize the childbearing difficulties in each generation among the mothers of Israel. The sages suggest that the Torah hopes to make a crucial point about the unnatural, indeed supernatural existence and persistence of the Jewish people. From its very inception, this nation struggled for existence, requiring divine assistance even in the earliest generations. Nothing can be taken for granted or viewed as automatic or inevitable in our unlikely and illogical history. In the same sense, America arose from abnormal origins. The nation didn't grow organically or gradually from indigenous tribes like, say, the French or the Poles, but emerged out of courageous, conscious acts of will by pilgrims and patriots. As a boy, I knew far more about the distinctive and fateful aspects of America's origins than I did about biblical references to the forefathers and foremothers of Israel. We weren't notably religious in those days, but my dad, as the utterly unexpected American-born gift that blessed his immigrant parents' old age, passed on to me a sense of the freakish fortune and favor associated with this new nation. Even before I reached...